Welcome back to Yaqeen Institute's live stream every Thursday night, 9 p.m. Eastern time. Um, let us know, uh, hit us up. Very, very important, exciting guest to uh, discuss with us some very important things. Um, as has been the case for the past several weeks, we're still thinking and praying um, and uh, feeling for Gaza. Um, the grounding has resumed. Uh, temporary ceasefire or pause, whatever you want to call it, uh, was uh, allowed to expire. And we've been flooded with more and more horrific images and videos. Um, some of the individuals that many of us have, have come to, to know personally and love um, have been, Rifat was, was one of them, uh, along with many others. So um, we've got, today's going to be a little bit different. Normally I take the first segment of the program to interact a bit, though of course, uh, welcome everybody from everywhere across the world. We have, mashallah, um, but we're going, we have such a specialist tonight that we want to maximize our time with him. So uh, we're going to right away, and we have a very, very important topic to talk about, which is about the, the leadership that is required from us, the characteristics of uh, how are we going to basically chart our way forward. A lot of time we pay attention to the systems, but we neglect the individual. And if we see, I think, and the doctor, Dr. Tarek, who was our guest, Dr. Tarek Dan, will give more information, of course, and, and uh, about this point. But if you think about the seerah of the Prophet um, that one thing that he was was a builder of people. And someone could argue spent in Mecca was a period where uh, the Prophet was building people, was, was helping to construct and constitute the qualities and develop and cultivate the qualities within people that they would need for the way forward. So as we think about our role in everything and where we go uh, forward from here, how do we sort of chart a path and help our brothers and sisters and beyond? We can't neglect the personal qualities that we need, the, the fact that every movement needs leadership and what's that leadership going to look like and how is it going to play out. So uh, without further ado, let's welcome our guest onto the program today. We have Dr. Tarek Soeden. Um, and a very, very illustrious career, uh, very, very well known throughout the world. He's the CEO and owner of Gulf Innovation Group in Kuwait. Previously, he was a general manager of Risada Satellite Television. That's one of the top television channels in the Middle East. He's got his PhD from the University of Oklahoma. He spent 20 years living in the United States. Um, and he's been recognized as one of the most popular Islamic speakers in the Arab world. He was one of the 500 most influential Muslims of 2022. He's authored over a hundred books on Islam and history. Uh, his focus is in the Sirah, uh, as well as leadership and strategic management. Um, part of that has resulted in training over a hundred thousand students in management and leadership. And he's established five schools in uh, five American and Canadian schools on social media. He's got a presence of over 18 million followers on Facebook and Twitter. And we don't say that because, uh, because the truth is judged by popularity. But just to demonstrate that uh, that Dr. Tarek is somebody whose work has received wide recognition uh, from a great amount of people, and we sure appreciate his presence with us tonight. Uh, so we'll bring him on, and welcome to the program, Dr. Tarek. 
he's still uh, backstage. We're going to uh, just take a minute to get things sorted out here. He's um, calling in from Kuwait, so sometimes when we have, there we go. I'm sorry to, uh, that you started uh, your program late, but we just prayed, prayed Fajr here. So, Taqabbalallah. Um, so, we have very, very important. I, I've been reflecting the past few weeks because I've gone to the some demonstrations. I went to the National March on Washington, D.C., which was. Uh, some estimates said it was attended by over 300,000 people. I've gone to local marches in the various cities sort of in my locality that were smaller. Some of them were organized by Masajid, some of them were not. Some of them were organized by secular groups. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to talk and have you speak to today was the sort of divide uh, between secular and religious activism. Um, and then maybe we'll talk about leadership within sort of social movements and, and how to really create an impactful change, something that I know especially our young people uh, will benefit from greatly. So the first topic, uh, talking about secular activism versus religious activism. Um, there's a sense in America, I'll speak from my own experience, I'm not really sure about how things are overseas, but there's a sense that if you want to be active to speak up for the Palestinian issue, that you almost have to play into secular politics or that the secular um, organizations are doing much, much more than religious organizations and misogyny. Um, I wanted to, and so therefore the, the, the thing is that young people are then pulled into more secular spaces and they feel often that they have to leave their Islamic identity behind them. I wanted to ask you to speak to this. Why do you think are the reasons behind this sort of situation? Thank you for inviting me, and it's an honor and pleasure to be with your audience. Um, our hearts and minds uh, have been occupied with the situation in Palestine. I have been very active in, in, in this, and um, uh, of course, as you know, in our countries, because of the political situation here, uh, the freedom of speech is not as much as you have in, in the United States. And uh, that caused me a lot of trouble. But again, uh, this is part of activism, is that uh, you, you take the challenge and you receive the, the pressure and you, um, you uh, overcome the pressures and continue. Uh, and, uh, the situation of activism uh, in, in the Middle East here uh, is uh, probably the opposite of what you're mentioning there. Um, we don't almost see any secular movement uh, that is active anymore. It's only Islamists that are really, really active. Uh, rarely, rarely we have heard about any secular organization that has any influence in, in, in any issue almost. So it is not a matter of uh, that uh, secular is, is better or more active or um, they work harder. I don't think that is the situation as much as uh, who is behind it and how do they do it. Now, to, do, to answer your question, let me, let me switch a little bit, and from that we will understand. What is the difference between uh, Islamic leadership and uh, leadership in general? What is the difference? And uh, when I ask my students uh, this question, uh, many of them, they would say it's, it's the same thing. At the end of the day, it's leadership. No, it's not. Uh, <clears throat> to understand this, 
we have to understand what is Islam in very in 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 a, in a general sense. Islam is three things. There is the faith, there is the ethics, and there are the laws. These three things comprise Islam. And if we want to call anything Islamic, then it has to abide by these three things. So uh, that is the difference between Islamic leadership and leadership. So in, the, in, in leadership, their goal is not Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the faith is not there. So that is a major difference. The niya is what changes everything. And the Prophet said, it, it is only counted by what is your intention behind it. So that is a major difference. The other the major difference is ethics. We have certain ethics that the Prophet ﷺ and the Quran have set for us, and we have to abide by them. So you, you, to be an Islamic leader or an ethical uh, or an Islamic activist, then you have to abide by the ethics of Islam. And the third thing is the Islamic laws. And there are not many here. Um, by the way, uh, we have it has been counted that laws in Islam or laws in the Quran comprise only 3% of the Quran. But there are laws that we have to abide by. For example, uh, if we have a meeting for activism, you cannot serve alcohol. <laughs> so that's just a simple uh, example. So uh, if you abide by these three, then you are an Islamic leader. Now, leadership itself, is, is there is no difference. So this goes uh, the same way with, with activism. With the tools and the methods of activism, both ways, whether it's an Islamic activism or secular activism, it's the same. And uh, I have worked with uh, uh, political organizations when I was in Washington, D.C. I, I worked in politics for two years there. And I worked with, um, with the White House and the Congress, etc. So, But the, the difference between us is, is not the tools or not the methods. It is, it is the... Uh, the application of these three things in everything that we do. So this is how I see the difference. As a matter of fact, because of these three things, we can do activism in a better way and in a more consistent way. And uh, our personal gains are not there. Many people would use activism to take a share of whatever they collect, for example, of donations for themselves. We don't do that in Islamic activism. So uh, uh, again, uh, I think also at the same time, as you mentioned, that uh, if secular activism is, is more effective than Islamic activism, then you should only need to do is uh, learn the methods and the tools that they they're using. In that case, you will you will uh, overcome and exceed what they do. I see. Thank you very much. So I'm really glad that you mentioned the uh, the split between maybe North American activism and activism in the Arab world. Um, those of us who are engaged heavily with the Palestinian cause and who are bilingual and engage and consume media from both notice a very large divide. The, the chants in English are very different from the chants in Arabic. Um, the language that's employed often in protests and demonstrations um, in uh, in the Western world, in English, are very different from the types of things. You have more prayers, you have more mention of Allah, you have, you know, uh, much more religious language, and it seems like religious commitment from people who are championing uh, the Palestinian cause uh, in the Arab world and beyond. 
there's a perception, um, there's a perception that within the youth in America and in North America that are passionate about the Palestinian cause, that the traditional Islamic way is not really getting it done. Um, now, you mentioned about techniques like, okay, well, if there's something that the secular activists are doing that the religious or traditional ones aren't, then that should be a pretty straightforward um, a pretty, pretty straightforward solution is just sort of educate yourself about the tactics and then apply them. Mm -hmm. But are there any other reasons why maybe religious activism or Islamic activism um, might be perceived as inadequate that is sort of driving maybe some of the youth to being frustrated? Definitely. Um, for the, before I go into that, um, there has been a survey by um, Gallup in the Arab world. And in general, in the masses, uh, religion, religion is really part of our daily life. And um, uh, for example, in Kuwait, uh, uh, those who, the uh, simple question was asked, do you consider yourself religious? And in Kuwait, for example, the answer was 84% said yes. <laughs> in other countries, it reached 99%. Uh, so, uh, so we don't see this divide. I mean, when, when we go into demonstrations, uh, protests, etc., and we have our slogans, etc., we don't, we don't think the same way that uh, the Muslim beauty in the West do, because um, shouting in the name of Allah and uh, for the cause of Allah and the jihad and the shahada, etc., is just normal for us. Uh, I think this is... Uh, this is something that your youth has to take into account because sometimes the laws would not allow it. Uh, for example, for us to say from the river to the sea is something that is very normal. <laughs> and we, we have no question about it. There is, uh, uh, when we, when we uh, shout it, you will not be judged <laughs> because it, that is, that is uh, the normal way that we think and see it. In the West, you might be persecuted for that, for example. So I, I think uh, your youth are very smart. And I have trained um, uh, a lot of uh, young generation from uh, America, Canada, Australia, and the West. And I see, I see a huge difference, frankly, between our youth and the Muslim youth from the West. And let me say something about this. After training so many people, Wallahi Akhi, the best are the youth that come from the West. <laughs> they, they know the tools better, uh, the techniques, the laws. They know uh, management uh, much better. Uh, so they, they have taken the best of two worlds and put them together. And uh, that brings them into a higher level of uh, commitment and achievement. So, uh, but at the same time, you are, uh, you are governed by certain laws that we are not governed by, and they should be, uh, they should be careful about it. And uh, sure. uh, for example, I, I have been into trouble even here because I was not careful about just certain words. Uh, so my advice is be careful uh, because uh, continuity is much more important than shouting one slogan and uh, use, uh, as we mentioned, the techniques of the West uh, to do activism.
uh, for example, let, let's let's give an example here of uh, say the red crescent compared to the red cross. Okay, so we have the red crescent here in Kuwait in many Muslim countries, and they are in charge of the official donations of Kuwait to to transfer them to Palestine. I I have been when I was in the West, I was I established several organizations, and one of them is a charity and a relief organization, and I have worked with the Red Cross. The, the techniques they are amazing, really amazing, and uh, we I learned a lot from them, and I I would advise strongly that uh, we continue to learn, especially the brothers and sisters in the West, learn from these people. I mean the uh, the Red Cross is able to mobilize thirty thousand volunteers within twenty four hours. We don't know how to do that. So these are techniques and methods and using management and leadership so uh, to, to channel it to, to, to our cause. So uh, you, you have a big advantage. I, I don't see, I, I see that we are in the disadvantage, not you. <laughs> Right, subhanAllah, mashallah. Um, yeah, no, I've, I've watched um, several of your interviews, mashallah, uh, at this point, and, and I do appreciate that point. It's also my observation. Um, I think that, um, you know, there's some interesting, one of the things that I notice about the youth and the young generation, those that are younger than me at least, is that they're, they don't have sort of the post 9-11 mentality of trying to hide away their uh, Islamic identity. I've actually heard several of them complain that if they step into a space of other, say, non-Muslims, people who are protesting for the Palestinian cause, they'll actually speak out and complain if they feel like their Islamic identity is being erased. Why did you invite us for a protest? I've heard this, for example, and it's we have to pray Dohr, and you didn't schedule into the into the you know the schedule of the day's events a time to pray Dohr. So now we have just people randomly sort of doing it. So I think that's tremendously encouraging that the young people are, they want to, they have the, um, the idara, right? They have the, uh, the, the, the techniques from the West when it comes to management and these sorts of things, which uh, if you go back to Umar ibn Khattab, right? And, and how innovative he was with his idara as a Khalifa, you see this sort of um, very, very wise and opportunistic, almost an entrepreneurial attitude towards uh, what are the techniques and what can we apply and leverage and, and what can we use? But the foundation of it, as you said at the very beginning, is the Islamic faith, is the belief, the limits that Allah has set in his law and the Islamic ethics. Um, I, I want to comment uh, just quickly. I have written um, uh, the Encyclopedia of Islamic History and I've written uh, uh, four books about the Khulafa. And I went into the details of uh, Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab. Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab uh, is uh, the, one of the major examples of management in Islam. Many people don't know this, that Umar ibn al-Khattab did not invent anything almost. He used the management system of the Persians. And to the surprise of many, the, the, the ministries of Umar ibn al-Khattab. He divided the country into ministries. Um, and these ministries 
uh, are um, at the, that time it's called D1. These D1s are all based on Persian management. Not only that, all the books of these ministries are written not in Arabic. They were written in Persian. And that continued all the way to the time of the Umayyads until they Arabized them. So we have no problem in using the, the other people's systems or methods or even language to mobilize our work. Uh, so uh, our great example, Omar bin Khattab, did that. So this is my advice. Use it, learn it, uh, transfer it to the Muslim world. We, we really need it because I, I've studied the West deeply. And one of the major things that made the West overcome the world is management. It is, it is in every part. You go to, to running the Ministry of Health, it's management. You go to managing uh, education, this leadership and management. So in every part you will see it. And unfortunately, the management systems in many of our countries are backward. Now they are improving a little bit. But in the West, it is, it is very advanced. So learn it and use it and transfer it to us. That's wonderful advice. And one last point I want to get your comment on before transitioning to talking about leadership qualities um, that our youth need to develop. And that is maybe um, a bleed over it from what you've, uh, you've brought to our attention about the asymmetry between very good management skills and very poor management mm -hmm. skills. Now, I don't think it's, it's, a, it's a secret, and I'm not trying to, um, to embarrass anybody by saying that sometimes, even here in the West, the poorest run institutions or, or some of the poorest run institutions are unfortunately are misadded, um, that they're not uh, managed properly and they don't have very much capacity. You have somebody who's a religious leader who is expected to do the work of maybe three, four or five people uh, and is compensated in a way that, you know, he has a very, very humble lifestyle. And then we look at, well, why can't we mobilize people? in the way that you're mentioning. Why can't we get um, a protest of 300,000? And I, I really studied this, this national march that I went to in Washington, DC. I looked at who were the nine organizations that ran it. I, I read through dozens, probably over a hundred of the organizations that endorsed it. And I'm thinking to myself while I was studying how this thing came together with the buses and chartering buses and the, you know, the media campaign, why can't we do something similar? Why can't the Muslims within the religious organizations do something similar? And I couldn't help but reflect on the way in which our masajid are run and unfortunately many of the religious organizations that we have. Um, I'm not sure if there's a comment or a question, yeah. but, but when it comes to the youth and then they see, for example, this is what, what is my concern is that when the youth, they go to this march and they see how well run it is, and it was done all by organizations that have nothing to do with the traditional masajid. And then they try to go to their masajid and things are very dysfunctional and they feel disempowered and they feel like they don't have a voice or they're not able to change things. I'm very afraid that those youth are going to associate those things with Islam itself and then it will impact their, they're going to have a bad experience and it will carry over. Could you maybe comment on that phenomenon yes, a little bit? Um... Um, yeah, yeah, I know of the march that happened in, uh, in Washington, D.C., because my family was there, and uh, they participated in that. Uh, 
So they told me a lot about it. But not only that. I, I know some of the organizers in, in, the, in the march. And uh, I, uh, management is a skill that is not born with you. It is a skill that you learn. It is a skill that you learn from people who are experts in that field. You cannot learn it from religious books. It is not there. Um, yes, there have been some writings of Islamic scholars about management, but again, this is uh, only touching, touching the, the surface of management, not the depth of management. Um, why are our messages not run well? Because they have not been trained to, be, to run well. Um, how many Muslim imams know how to write a strategic plan or an operational plan or um, a balanced scorecard or uh, say, for example, uh, a training program uh, for the youth, etc., etc. There are skills that we use. For example, um, you have meetings, everyone has meetings, but we, we have methods now in management that in uh, within wallahi i'm not i'm not exaggerating within one fourth of the time we can achieve four times of the results it's it's uh, it's not something that i invented uh, take for example i teach cre creativity and um, i i we we encourage uh, our youth and we encourage our audience to be very creative but that is not enough you have to teach them how to be creative and to how to be creative there's a system there are seven steps you follow them you become creative now if you don't know these seven steps you will not be creative so uh, uh, of course there are exemption exceptions but that is the exemption so uh, again i i would advise strongly that uh, our imams our leaders of the masajid or uh, next generation to learn this. It's available in, in uh, universities in the West. It's available in training programs. Uh, it is available by versa today that, in, in, for example, uh, I'm, I'm going to teach, uh, inshallah, in January, a full seminar to the leadership of Islamic workers in Australia. And I will do it in English. Uh, so, um, again, um, uh, why don't they do it? Because they don't know it. How do we solve that? By by teaching them and training them on that. And especially now, alhamdulillah, we have many young leaders like yourself that have to take the torch and and do it. This is a false beard. I am 70 now. And it is it is time that we transfer the torch to someone else to carry it. And uh, we can teach you how to do it. We have done it. Uh, Alhamdulillah, I have established in my life 98 organizations. I've written 125 books. 60% of them are on management and leadership and so on. So we can, we can teach easily. We know how to do it. And you can learn it also even easier because we have learned it from the West and you are living in the West. You can learn it directly from the scholars in the West. No, that's that's fantastic. So one of the things I think that you're emphasized that I want the viewers to make sure that they they register and appreciate is that we have to have a cultural shift even within our own massage and, and our own institutions that we can't just 
abandon them as just, oh, it's a place that you open the key and then you go and you pray and then you go home, that it needs to be a place where these things are taught. And the Prophet ﷺ, he said, in Allah right? Is that uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has decreed excellence in everything that you do. Yeah. And subhanAllah, if, if we can't establish excellence in the masajid, we can't. <laughs> if we can't, we can't. I, 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 I go back to my uh, memories. Um, uh, the first seminar I ever taught on management was in the masjid in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And yes. I, 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 taught, I taught them a full school, uh, uh, seminar on management. And that was in 1986. Hmm. So, so, yeah, so it can be done and it, it was done in massages. And I would encourage that we, again, we, we, as you mentioned, massages are not only to pray and get out. The masjid should be an institution that would do the activism in the whole, community around it yes and as one of our commenters mentioned susu he said that this is why we need to also diversify our careers within the community unfortunately some people are only focused on medicine or engineering which is great but we also need people to learn these skills to help our ummah the masajid run trainings and to have everybody sort of raise uh raise the bar well i have so, you, um, I, my advice no matter what your specialty is you, you, you should learn management because whatever you do, you, you will need management, either for your personal projects or even if you are a doctor and one day you have to manage a hospital. Now, if you manage a hospital, then it's 90% management and 10% medicine. So learn it early on. So when the time comes that you would need it, you're, you'll be ready for it. That's great advice. And frankly, you know, um, my first degree is in, in political theory. My second is in Sharia. And I never learned anything about leadership or management <laughs> until I came back to the States. I can teach I you. I can teach you. <laughs> of course, I would love it. Um, I, had, I also had a sheikh tell me, pull me aside and said, listen, you really need to pay attention to this. You need to start reading books. Here's some books on leadership and management. And even in your marriage, even with your children, even with, you know, uh, just relationships in general, I, um, I, it was something that was not on my radar, but something that I continue to benefit a lot from. So let's, uh, let's pivot to uh, the second line of question. We want to talk about the actual uh, qualities of leadership, especially with the youth. Many of our youth are listening right now. Um, maybe they want to do something. They, they're tired of what's going on in our country, supporting them. Maybe perhaps our country in the United States is the most responsible for what's going on in, in Gaza and Palestine. Uh, they want to do something about it. They have ideas even, but maybe they lack certain qualities that are needed uh, to lead a movement or just whatever they want to do. What are some of the most important, essential qualities that they're going to need to develop if they want to be a leader? Before that, we have to answer a question. Are you born a leader or are you made into a, becoming a leader? And that question has been answered in so many different ways. And I prefer this answer, that there are leaders who are born. And uh, one example for that is the Prophet Sallallahu when he uh, appointed Usama uh, to lead the last army before his death. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Uh, Usama at that time was 17 years and a half. 
and this appointment did not go without objection. The, the, uh, the army objected to this appointment. And the first one to, uh, to object was Omar ibn al-Khattab And he said his famous words, He appointed a boy to lead us. And that spread like fire. And uh, almost all the army started to say the same thing. I mean, we're, we are going to face the, one, the second greatest uh, uh, power in the whole world, the Romans. And uh, we are led by a boy. So uh, that was a very dangerous appointment. The Prophet was sick at that time. And he, uh, that, these words did not reach him until three days, just three days before his death. So he made a speech. And in the speech, he said many things. In the speech, one of the things that he said, Usama. You object to the leadership of Usama. I swear by Allah that he is born into a leader like his father was born into a leader. So this is a very direct, clear answer that there are people who are born leaders. Uh, Amr ibn al-As was born into a leader. Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab says about Amr ibn al-As, لا ينبغي لأبي عبد الله أن يمشي على الأرض إلا أميرا. Abu Abdullah, Amr ibn al-As, should not walk on this earth as a follower. He should always be a leader. So there are people who are born leaders. But the percentage is between 1 and 2% only. Now, most people are not born into leaders, and we can train them to become leaders. So leadership, either you have it or you can uh, get it. Now, uh, how do you become a leader if you are not born into a leader? If you are not, then um, there are several approaches, Yaqi. And this is, I'm talking scientifically speaking here. Uh, one of the major approaches uh, is the, uh, goes back to your questions. Our question, what are the qualities of a leader? We specify them, we train our young generation on these qualities, and then they become leaders. So that is one approach, but that is not the only approach. There is another approach, and that is forget about qualities. Totally. Think about laws of leadership. There are laws of leadership. If you know the laws and you know how to apply them, then you will become a leader. So, for example, uh, uh, if, going back to the, the, the first approach, what are the qualities? Now, this question has been answered almost by all scholars of leadership, and I counted 225 qualities of leadership. Now, are they all at the same level of importance? And this is another question that was answered by a full research, great research, done by Causes and Posner. And uh, for your audience to, to read the um, reference to that, it is uh, the, written in their book, uh, The Leadership Challenge, by Causes and Posner, available. And um, they have done a research uh, trying to answer your question, what are the qualities of a, leader, of a leader that people would follow willingly? And uh, 
this research yeah, the first the first results were published after 27 years of research and uh, they have uh, surveyed more than a million and a half people in all continents and they specified five five major qualities so again there are a lot that you can learn in leadership there are many many qualities that you need to be trained on but try to master these five the first one is integrity and this is not an islamic research and the other well I, this is this is really nice integrity what is it so they went into the depth of it and they um, they answered it by saying being trustworthy truth telling as the Prophet was named before even he was given the message. So try to, to live with integrity. Uh, and the integrity is simple. What, don't do what you don't, well, don't say something and do something else. Simple. So that is the first thing. Be a role model. The second one is have a vision. Have a vision. Try to know for yourself and for those that you're leading. What do you want to achieve long term, not short term? So that is a major thing that you should look into. The third one is motivation. A leader should know how to motivate the followers. And this is not simple. It is not just thanking them and encouraging them. It's, it goes much, much deeper than that. Motivation is a system, meaning that I would study those that I would like to motivate. And then I would know that this person is motivated by words, while this person is only motivated by money. And this one is motivated by giving a chance of leadership, etc. So we say it in a different way. We say every person has a key. So motivation is knowing which key to use. So that is the third thing that you should know. The, four, the fourth thing is being competent. Being competent, which means that you should learn management. You should know how to manage them. So a leader needs to learn management. And finally, the fifth quality that they looked into is uh, uh, being clever, being smart. And uh, it's, again, it's not, it's not only your IQ. That is part of it, but it's not only your IQ. Uh, being smart is also a system that you can learn and apply. And uh, you, you, you know how to use this method at this moment. And I would advise strongly that everyone would learn decision-making, decision-making. And uh, many people think they know decision-making, but this is very superficial. But uh, I, I would advise that they go into the depth of it. In, in there are methods for decision making. We have Minimax, Maximax, Bayes, Butterfly, etc. So if you don't know these systems, then you would just do it by judging on your experience, which is good, but not enough. But knowing these methods will make my mistakes much less. There is no, there is no way that I can 100% secure a good decision, but I can minimize the mistakes. 
So these are the major five qualities that I would advise that you you uh, focus on. Excellent. Now you mentioned that these, even though this research is done by non-Muslims, that it uh, it pretty much squares with everything in the Islamic tradition. And you are somebody who's an expert on the Sirah. Can you give us some examples from the Sirah where the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam demonstrated these qualities uh, that that these non-Muslim researchers researchers are saying yes that this is you have to have it to be to be a good leader. Uh, yeah, this would need a whole new session. Yeah, <laughs> I've, I've, I've written um, a book, a big book, um, in two volumes, uh, nine hundred pages, on just answering this question. And that is the leadership of the Prophet So I called it prophetic leadership. And uh, what I did is that I took the system of leadership. There is a system. How do we do it, Yaqi? It's very simple. First of all, we discover leaders, or we discover those who are potential leaders. And there's a full system for that. And then we educate them before we train them. So we teach them the behavior of leaders. And then we train them to be leaders. And then we train them on specialties, like Khalid Walid on, on military, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud on knowledge and being a religious leader, and so on. And then we have to do this through an atmosphere of leadership. Now, Every step of these have details. And in every detail, yeah, in every detail, I'm not talking about the major ideas, in every detail, the Prophet applied them. So, uh, so when, sir, for example, you're talking about discovering leaders, he did that a lot, a lot, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Now, of course, uh, for Muhajireen, it was easy because he spent 13 years with them before they started any, any jihad, any even building a, a state, etc. So he was in daily touch with them and he knows them. But it is for Al-Ansar that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, you can see it very clearly. For example, one of the tribes of the Al-Ansar, they, they had many leaders and they almost decided on one of the leaders. Now in the first meeting, huh, in the first meeting that the Prophet ﷺ met with them when they embraced Islam, he said, Man Sayyidukum, who is your leader? They said so and so. He said no. Let so and so lead you. And he chose the youngest among, among them. To lead them. Now, this is in the first meeting. He knows. We have we have signs. We know. I mean, after training so many people, writing, I, I wrote nine books just on leadership. Yeah, we Allah we know. just half an hour, only half an hour. We would know that this person has in it in him or her what what it takes to be a leader. Of course, there are people that we would need to spend more time with. But those who have this quality, we can see it very quickly. The Prophet ﷺ saw it. Now, uh, uh, did he train them to be leaders? Of course. 
of course. Let me give you a very clear example. You know, Sira also, and many of your audience know that Sayyidina Khalid ibn al-Walid radiyallahu anhu made mistakes, made major mistakes. And in one of the major mistakes, he uh, killed some Muslims by mistake. And, the, uh, the, and uh, when that was discovered, what happened after that? Many people say that the Prophet ﷺ took the hand of Umar, uh, of Khalid, raised it, and he said, I swear by Allah that I have nothing to do with this mistake of Khalid. But what happened after that? Khalid continued to be a leader, continued to be appointed, even with his major mistake. We have a law now in leadership that if you start punishing your people, if they do mistakes, then you will have no one next to you. Mm -hmm. What you should punish is not mistakes. What should you should punish is repeating the same mistake after you told them that this is a mistake. Then that is punishable. So that is, for example, one of the laws applied to a, a, a certain person. Now, let's take uh, the example of Khalid ibn al-Walid again and take the example of Abu Dhar radiallahu anh. Abu Dhar was the fifth man to embrace Islam. In the first year of the message, not the year of Hijrah, the first year of the message, he was the fifth man to embrace Islam. He was never appointed in any position. Take Khalid ibn al-Walid and Amr ibn al-As. They embraced Islam on the seventh year of Hijrah. Not the seventh year of Islam, the seventh year of Hijrah, which is 20 years after Khalid, uh, after Abu Dhar. Both of them, both. Khalid ibn Walid and Amr ibn al-As were appointed to lead only four months or five months after their Islam. Now let's apply this to Islamic organizations. Take, for example, your masjid or uh, any Islamic movement. I, I always challenge my friends in the Islamic movement. I say, none of you apply sunnah mm -hmm. because you have conditions that to, to be one of our leaders, they must be with us 15 years or whatever. How many among you would be willing to let a young man or woman who is only four months into Islam and let them be your leader? The Prophet ﷺ did that. While he, Abu Dhar anhu, was very sincere. And he came to the Prophet ﷺ and he said, Oh Prophet of Allah, you give appointments to everyone. I want to serve. I want to be to get the reward like them. So give me any appointment. The Prophet said, no, you are too weak to be a leader. So being sincere, and by the way, being knowledgeable, Abu Dhar was very knowledgeable. Sayyidina Ali says about Abu Dhar, Abu Dhar, Abu Dhar is a bag full of knowledge. But at the same time, he was never appointed a leader. So leadership is not being sincere. Leadership is not being knowledgeable. It's not getting a degree. So these are, for example, some of the things that we, are, we, 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 we judge by that is, that is irrelevant to leadership. 
and we can see it from management point of view and we can see it from the prophetic point of view our approach our our vision of leadership and how to choose them how to appoint them uh, had to switch and understand it from scientific point of view and understand it even from prophetic point of view further excellent points and, and fantastic examples i'm sure all of our viewers are, uh, appreciate uh, appreciate it a lot um, let's imagine a, a scenario where we have a young person who's who's passionate and they want to start a movement they want to start something and affect change mm. um, how would you advise them where do they start some people they they, they get overwhelmed at, at where to start how would how should they go about starting a movement for change and then maybe once they're up and running how do they keep people engaged that motivation that you talked about that's a huge question. <laughs> okay, let's switch a little bit. Let me start with, this is how I teach it. What is the difference between planning and change? So, looking at both, we would see that we start with studying the present situation. Where are we now? And we have to define our vision where do we want to go and then we have to set the system and the plan how do we move from here to there so up until now what i'm describing is planning and change has the same elements the present, the future, and the plan. But change has a fourth element that planning doesn't have. And that is resistance. Whenever you try to apply change, then you should expect resistance. Now, resistance is a science. And this science has been studied deeply. And uh, there are only, only, yeah, 20 methods that any resistance would use. Whether you apply it within an Islamic uh, institution or uh, state or even the mafia. It's only the same 20. So to, to, to really uh, being able to, to do change, you must master change. And then you should master the knowledge of resistance. How do they are, how are they going to approach it? And then we have another science called how do you resist the resistance? And there are 60 laws that are applied there. So again, you see, we have a system of resistance. Now, there are equations. And again, because of my background as an engineer, we put engineering into everything. So uh, let me let me help your audience, the young generation who are very motivated, inshallah, the future leader. Let me give you one of the major, major equations of change. To apply change, there are three things that you should master. Number one is, is there enough pain? If there is not enough pain, people will not move, people will not change. So that is why, for example, it is much easier 
to have change in a poor country than a rich country because there's a lot of pain there it is much easier to have change in a dictatorship than having it in a democracy because in dictatorships you have more pain so what is the level of pain now if there is not enough pain we can move people to understand that they should see pain they should embrace pain because pain is good i mean just imagine your body not feeling anything and then you'll be in trouble so that is the first thing the second thing is you should master vision what is your vision where do you want to move change is moving people towards a goal what is that goal so if you don't know it and you, you don't know how to relate it to others then they would not move with you the third thing that many people miss is what we call the first steps so for example yeah, you want to do change in your masjid so there's pain that it is not run well etc and you have a vision of what you want them to do so can will you be successful no until you master the third part and that is the f and the f here is the first steps and this is very specific what are you going to do in the first 18 months if you don't master the first 18 months then change will fail so for example let's take um, the arab spring in egypt for example there was a lot of pain and they moved and they had a vision by the way and i've seen it it's written very well written but they did not master the first steps so to me while i was watching this revolution happening i knew that it would not succeed because it did not meet the major equation of change and that is one of nine major equations so this is my advice if you if you want to lead change then you should study the science of change and understand how to take it from concepts into application no that's that's excellent advice very eye-opening uh, and i think very new for a lot of people who are watching um definitely it's motivating me to to get some of your books I love um, that. <laughs> now i'm uh, translating them uh, inshallah <laughs> Inshallah, some uh, some are available on uh, on Amazon and uh, others. Mashallah, mm. um, So uh, sometimes one thing that everything you've said has sort of uh, drawn my attention to is that not all actions are as impactful as others. And one thing I think that we struggle with when it comes to uh, let's say activism for Palestine and the Palestinian cause, we've got a lot of pain. Okay, uh, we even have a vision. Okay, maybe this is first steps, maybe it's not. But I feel like the the tactics that we use sometimes, or the specific actions, are more about expression than they are about impact. Sometimes, um, can you talk to us about how to channel the en the energy, right? How to channel the pain, and how to to select from the different actions that you could potentially choose 
how to think through which ones are really going to have the most impact and help your cause the most. Yeah, again, um, the way I would look at anything is do, do we have a system? It is not enough to have the motivation. It, it is not enough to be sincere. It, we, we, do you have the system? And the system starts with the understanding. What are you? What What do you want to do? I mean, many of our young generation, they know that they they want to do, uh, say, a demonstration, but that is not the goal. Yeah. The, that is the method. That is the way. And the question, a very simple question: Is this the best method? Did you study that? Did you even think about it? Is that the best way to achieve it? Maybe, maybe lobbying is much better than uh, doing a demonstration, for example. Maybe uh, the better, the better way, much better way, for example, is focus say, uh, for 20 years on um, uh, wealth, become very rich, and then use this money to move the media and the lobby like the Zionists are doing. So oh, why did you choose demonstrations? Demonstrations, by the way, are the, uh, are, are the easiest method because they are very short term. They uh, diffuse the heat in, in our hearts. Uh, and then we go back and we feel that we did something. But what is the impact? In, in um, management, there, uh, there are certain criteria. For example, uh, now we teach uh, KPIs, the key performance indicators. And uh, for example, if we go to your masjid or any masjid or any organization, then they would say, okay, we should our keep KPIs be, we should um, at least have uh, weekly activity, one major activity every year, etc. So they, they measure it by activities. All of this, until now, is performance. It is not effectiveness. It is performance. Now, today in management, we are moving away from KPIs into KEIs, which is Key Effectiveness Indicators. Yes. So the question is, uh, if you did 10 demonstrations are did did that change anything did it impact anything what is your effectiveness behind it so you have to ask yourself a question what do you want to achieve out of these demonstrations do you want to change the vote in the congress did that happen if that that did not happen then your impact did not happen and so on so uh, what I see, actually, even in the Islamic world, and uh, I am in the leadership of uh, many of my Muslim movements, what I see is a huge emphasis on what to do. But there, there is little emphasis on where do we want to go? What do we want to achieve? So we have a lot of activities, even with our young generation. We have daily prayers and uh, weekly lessons and maybe one trip a year etc so but did that change anything what 
what what did you want what do you want to achieve out 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 of it so these simple questions has to be answered so this is uh, this is my advice to the young generation learn learn this and even if you don't learn it just just sit down and think about it what do you want to achieve and try to answer this question in a measurable way and then do whatever you want to do but always ask yourself the question did it achieve my measurable goal then this is the impact so the impact is not a mystery it is something that we can plan for and we can apply yeah yeah one of the things i mean i really appreciate um the systematic way that you're or the way in which you're bringing systematic thinking uh that was actually one of the things that attracted me to study fiqh and sharia because you know the books of fiqh and usur they're so systematic um, and that's one of the major takeaways I have from everything you shared with us today, that our thinking and our action and our planning has to be more systematic, right? We have to actually uh, think about these things carefully and uh, determine a course of action that, that makes sense and realize that there are several available actions, choices, tools at our disposal, and you almost need to unfurl them in a sequence that's going to actually uh, have the de desired effect. Now, last week I was at Columbia University um, and I was talking to some of the students there and they had a, a situation where their university had disbanded some of the student groups who were um, you know, outspoken on the Palestinian issue. Um, and so we were kind of brainstorming and I was just by chance uh, trying to encourage them to consider something similar to what you're saying. I was saying, okay, You've had demonstrations up to this point, but what other sort of actions have you considered or are you willing to do? Is there, what about a tuition strike? What about uh, organizing the teachers to have a walkout? What about, you know, a teaching and education? And just trying to get the brainstorming to think about what are all the different actions that, as you said, are according to our ethics within the limits of a snap. And now let's look at what are we actually trying to achieve and which actions actually help ser serve our goals the best. Mm. I think that the whole, at least I can speak for North America, I think that the entire um, pro-Palestinian or, or the Palestinian cause, we really need to have this type of thinking. I think that it really, uh, and we do have a limited amount of time. I think that there is urgency to it. As you said, the first 18 months, the first steps, we're not going to have this type of pain forever. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the type yeah. of pain that we've experienced watching the videos, seeing the children, seeing uh, people that we know, our family members, everything that's happening. This is some this is lightning that we have to capture into a bottle and we have to take advantage of the moment that we have in the most intelligent way. Um, and so I really, really appreciate that. Uh, one thing that, that you mentioned that uh, reminded me uh, uh, studying uh, and also Mm -hmm. I, 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 when I studied that, it was very clear, very clear, that Islam teaches us to be systematic. Yeah. And usul al-fiqh especially is, is the way to build a system. Now, uh, fiqh, for example, and this is one small advice to your audience. Al-Madahib, uh, being Shafi'i, Hanbali, etc. You don't have to be. 
You don't have to be if you have a system, if you know the system. But if you don't have a system, then remember that these madahir were built around the system. And this system is always applied. You cannot, for example, take the words of the companions as uh, uh, law giving and in one condition and on one situation and in another situation, you refuse it. That's, that's not being systematic. The Madahib did that and they applied it and they result, that resulted in this system. Now, if you, if you refuse the Madahib and don't have a system, then you are very unsystematic. And this is not the way to understand even the laws of Islam. So really, you can learn it even from Usul al-Fiqh to be very systematic. Yeah, that's a brilliant point and very, very important that, you know, it, we're not going to tell you which system, but you have to have a system. Yes. Because if you don't have a system, if you don't have a system, that's actually when your conflict of interest and your hawa, right, start to play with, well, when am I going to um, apply this principle and when am I not going to apply this principle? How do I ensure that I'm not applying it in a self-serving way, right? And that's the whole reason to have a system in the first place. Yeah. Uh, brilliant point. Mm -hmm. um, is there anything, so uh, we've reached you know, time. Uh, I don't see a ton of questions. Is there any sort of closing remarks, remarks yeah, Sheikh, that you'd love to, to leave the audience with today? Uh, yeah, and, uh, again, I want to thank you, first of all, for this opportunity. And I uh, thank to your audience that they are patient with us. But um, yeah, and again, I would, I would really appreciate if the young generation, whatever their specialty is, to learn leadership, to learn management, to learn change management. And these uh, sciences are available in the West. Uh, try to learn the Islamic systematic way of thinking. This will give you a, 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 an eye-opening approach to everything, everything in life. And uh, we really need this in, in the Islamic world. Barakallah Thank you so much for the program today. It was an honor and a blessing, and uh, may Allah accept from us. Barakallah thank you so much for this invitation, and continue the good work, Barakallah Fikum. InshaAllah, thank you so much. Salaam alaykum. Alaykum Okay, there you have it, mashallah. So a lot of uh, inspiring words from Dr. Tarek Swaydan. Um, and I think a very clear message, something to take away when it comes to the work that we can do. Sometimes we get, um, we just run out of ideas. We have a very poor imagination sometimes for what can we do to help our ummah? What can we do to help Palestine? We think about the usual things, donating money, you know, sort of raising awareness, uh, calling congressmen or, or sort of typical sort of political things. But we forget to build up ourselves. We forget to build ourselves up and give ourselves the skills, strategies, and tools that we will need for the long haul in order to, uh, to help our brothers and sisters in Palestine. And one of those things includes studying management techniques and sort of uh, everything that Dr. Tadek spoke to, elevating us, elevating our levels, elevating ourselves as an individuals, collectively, our institutions, our masajid, our charity organizations, um, we should really take the charge that the Prophet ﷺ gave us to be people of Ihsan, to try to have, to, not just to have Ihsan in what we put out our effort for the world, but also to construct our institutions and our movements for justice with Ihsan uh, as much as possible. 
So we hope that everybody uh, benefited. I know I certainly did. Uh, and we've got a lot of work to do. So without further ado, I'd like to bid everyone farewell for tonight. May Allah accept it from us. And inshallah ta'ala, we'll see you next week. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa